0: good morning. Hope you've had a great weekend thus far. If you have a Bible this morning, let's open it up to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, we'll be looking at verse 17 and following. Ephesians 4, 17 and following. All right. So uh, just heads up for the guys in the back. I'm not getting anything up here, so we got it. All right. uh, So we are in our essentials series. And this morning, we're going to be looking at... The Christ life, the resurrection of Jesus and the Christ life. Now, when we use that language, that's kind of fellowship language. (coughs) Sorry, I just had a something. Uh, And when we use that language, it's not something that's going to be immediately familiar. So, when we use that language, what we are talking about is what we would kind of call the Christian life. How do we live a life in discipleship to Jesus Christ? What is that? How does it work? How do we pursue it? It is an essential. Uh, It is one of those things in the Christian world that must be or there is no Christianity. If there's not a new life in Christ from the old life without Christ, then Christ is of no consequence anyway. And there's no reason to even have to pursue this at all. So when we talk about sanctification, that's the big theological term, uh, the sinner being made new and the life that results from that. We're speaking about not just our lives, but the implementation of Christ's resurrection. So, like, you can't have an essential series without talking about the resurrection, right? So, the resurrection is the yes of God to all the promises Jesus makes. When that's Easter Sunday morning rolls around, and Christ is out of his grave, everything he says and promises has been proven true. And just as Christ is raised to a new life, so are those who believe in him. Now the scripture, as you can imagine, goes overboard in this. As a matter of fact, if you were going to really look at the New Testament, the vast majority of the New Testament is in actuality about the Christ life explaining the gospel, explaining the cross. Those are, of course, in very important portions of the New Testament and are thoroughly uh, invested in and pursued, but how to live Christianity is the vast majority of the New Testament. So to try to boil that down is is a massive task, as you can imagine. But I wanted to start with the beginning precepts of it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul gives us just a quick rundown when he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We use this verse all the time to describe the moment of, of conversion from being turned from sinner to saint. It's the moment that a confessing Christian has put their faith in Christ, has repented of their sins, and is granted the new life in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. That new manifests itself in a new heart and a new mind, in a new way of trying to pursue life. Paul, likewise, in Romans chapter six, verse four. Romans chapter six, verse four says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you can watch Paul tie these ideas together. They are co-ideas. They are not separated ideas. That as Christ was raised, so we too might walk in newness of life. So those ideas are compacted together. They're not separated ideas. Uh, In the 70s and 80s, yes, all those millennia ago, in evangelicalism, a theological debate raged called the Lordship Salvation Debate. The Lordship Salvation Debate mostly had among Baptists, not dogging Baptists, it's just true, raged on this issue. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 10 says, if you can, or 9 says if you or 10. 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you'll be raised from the dead. And the argument was: if you just pray the sinner's prayer, you're saved, no matter what the rest of your whole life looks like. If you ever prayed the prayer, you're saved. One group was saying that. The other group was saying, <laughs> like that. Because of the vast majority of texts like these that say. Anyone who truly believes in Christ has a life that has been transformed to some extent by Christ. That if Christ was raised, so too we have been raised to the glory of God the Father. Now again, as I said, the the, the vast majority of the New Testament is about this. Finding a passage to dig through uh, would seem to be difficult, but is not actually, because Paul, in Ephesians chapter four, does a great job of breaking down a universal kind of view of this idea. So in Ephesians chapter four, now background on Ephesians, Uh, Ephesus is the place where Paul planted his most successful church if you will. Paul was the pastor of First Baptist Ephesus for a long time. And eventually, when he leaves, gets Timothy, his his young apprentice, to take over as the pastor, if you will, of the Ephesian church. It is a massively important place for him. When Paul writes Ephesus, he is writing a very, very cosmopolitan Roman city that has a high Jewish population and a high Gentile population population. right. So if you're unfamiliar with the, with the, the, the Hebrew, the Jews worldview and how they look at the world when they wrote the Bible, Paul, for example, would think there are two kinds of people in the world. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. And that's it. That's all it is. You are either Jewish or you are not. That's how they looked at the world. So when you see Paul use the word Gentile, he means anybody, anybody who's not Jewish. And from both groups, Christians were being converted, and they started going to church together, and it caused all kinds of issues, because Jews lived one way, and Gentiles lived another, and a lot of Paul's writings are trying to get these two groups to live together in the faith of Christ, and to follow who Jesus is. So. In Ephesians, you'll you'll see it all over the place. This is what Paul is primarily writing about. He's writing about Jews and Gentiles You need to live together under the lordship of Christ. So when you get to Ephesians 4, verse 17 and following, Paul is going to describe that new life, and he begins by saying in verse 17, Ephesians 4, 17, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of of their minds, in the futility of their minds. Now, what Paul is saying here, he's not just throwing the Gentiles under the bus, okay? If you want to watch Paul throw the Jews under the bus, read Galatians, that's where he does that. Here, he's trying to say, and as he has already said in the book of Ephesians, that Jews at least know who God is. They at least have the 10 commandments. They at least have the law. They have the prophets. They have the temple. They have all these advantages into knowing who God is. The Gentiles have none of those things. And so he's writing to the new Christians and saying to them, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, the word futility here uh, means to be absent of force, uh, to be absent of truth, and to be absent of ability. And he's not speaking about life in general. He's speaking specifically about the knowledge of God and who God is. So in essence, what Paul is saying as he introduces this concept is, okay, Christians, now I'll say this to you. You cannot live like you don't know who God is Like you don't know the truth about who God is and that you don't know, you don't have the ability to discover who God is. When you become a Christian, you have to live like you know who God is, know what God wants and know what God has called you to. That's what he's saying. The futility, as we use the words, means a meaninglessness an effort that results in no forward progress or no accomplishment of the goal. You can try it, it's futile, it doesn't matter. And as you're gonna watch this passage play out, Paul is again and again going to say that without Christ, our pursuit of God is futile. There is nothing to be gained in a pursuit of God outside of Christ, Uh, He says it over and over again. You can listen to the whole Essentials series if you want to know exactly what that means. But he places that parameter on the conversation we're about to have. So as we dive into the particulars of what he's about to say, remember that he is saying, you can pursue Christ and you can know who God is and those efforts can matter or you can pretend you don't know who God is and know that everything you do is futile. All right? Futile. In verse 18, he says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, Paul here is speaking generally of anyone who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't understand. He addresses so many of our modern concerns in this verse when he says, well, what if they didn't know? Didn't know is ignorance. And he addresses that. They are ignorant. They don't know. Uh, But these particular groups that he's speaking of are ignorant because of a hardness of heart. All right, here's where I start throwing the giant bombs that make you want to find me after this, okay? I will be hidden. If you want to email me, the email is rickdunn at org. All right, verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Sound like anybody's culture you know? Become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. If you look at verse 18, he says, "There is a hardness of heart." If you look at verse 19, it says, "They have become calloused and have given themselves up." Both of those images are meant to be indicative of a spiritual condition." All right, now for the gross out portion of our morning. I hate shoes. Anybody else in here hates shoes? Anybody with me? My brother, back there in the back, okay. If I could go barefoot all the time, I would. I go barefoot as much as possible. If I don't have to wear shoes, I don't. In some places, I will preach and kick my shoes off, and they'll go, he's on holy ground, it's so holy. No, he hates shoes, and he's using the presupposition to seem more holy, Okay. But because I hate shoes, and I don't wear shoes whenever possible, and I will walk everywhere without shoes, I have, as my son calls them, my three-year-old son will come up, look at my feet and go, why you got rocks on your feet? (laughs) Because I have giant calluses on my feet. How big are the calluses on my feet? This big. I was wearing flip-flops, the only shoe I will tolerate. In Florida, and I walked across a little grass kind of lot, came out on the other side, walked into our house that we were staying at, sat down, talking to my wife, talking to my kids, blah blah, 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 and I looked down and there are burrs, those little prickly burrs all over my shoes and all over my feet and I did not feel them at all. I had to pick them off, I was like, ow, 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 okay? They're stuck into my feet, I don't feel them at all. That's how callous my feet are. I'm glad those of you, how many of you hate feet and are disgusted by the conversation about them? <laughs> my sister, good. I see that hand. Come forward. You're going to have to take me just as I am. That's good. That's good. That's good. good. Callousness is an unfeelingness, an inability to feel, hardened to the point of not being sensitive. There is no question in the human condition, that if we ignore conscience long enough, eventually we will lose all sensitivity to it. That we can pursue sin and rebellion against God to the point that we will no longer be able to feel the conviction of what we are doing you were to go around Knoxville and Southern culture in general, people raised in the church who will eventually say things that sound spiritual like this. I used to believe that was wrong, but I don't anymore. Now, maybe, maybe through study of scripture, through the pursuit of advice of older Christians through trying to understand Paul's walk between grace and legalism, trying to understand the fullness of the freedom from the law God has given us, they have become convicted by study that an attitude or action that they held before was sinful is not anymore. That is, of course, what everyone will claim. The truth, more likely, is that having pursued rebellion... And having gone against what they knew was wrong for so long, they have lost all ability to feel the conviction that God gives. And are left in a spiritual state of deadness. Brought on by their own rebellions. By their own actions that were allowed to grow into fruition and give the fruit of hardened heart. Now, Paul is warning us here. He is warning you, Christian, that that can be you too. That we can pursue rebellion to the place where spiritually we will be deadened. Lost? No. Christians, once saved, always saved by the grace of God. But Paul is saying, someone who is truly a believer will never lose that final bit voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to them in conviction. In verse 20, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. So if you go back to verses 18 and 19, he says, they have pursued wickedness, they have lusted for impurity. They have pursued impurity to the point where they are hardened and lost all sensitivity. But that is not how you learned Christ. That's not how you learned Christ. Verse 21, he says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The truth that is in Jesus, Paul says here, he puts across that Ephesian church so that both Jew and Gentile have to reckon with the person of Christ. The Jew can't go, well, we know who God is because we got Moses and we got Ezekiel and we got Habakkuk. We got them all. We're good. Everything's great. No, Paul says, the truth is in Jesus. The fullness of who God is, is in Jesus. And the Gentiles can't go, that's just for those crazy Jews. I like bacon, I'm gonna eat it. I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. And I'm gonna live however I wanna live. And I'm gonna pursue anything I wanna pursue. And I'll be a good person and I won't hurt anybody. I.E. our modern ethical framework. No, the truth is in Jesus In verse 20 and 22, this whole section flows together, okay? As we get into these verses, I want you to see the flow of these verses. Now, the problem with this is that the truth is in Jesus, which is a massively important point, obviously. That phrase, right in the middle of it, you can go to the next slide. Uh, The phrase right in the middle of it will will make the point not flow as well. So we're going to take it out. And I want you to read verse 20 through 22 without that phrase in it. Next slide. It says, But that is not the way you learned Christ. Oh, you missed I think there's one gone. There we go. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So what Paul says here is fundamental to the Christian life. He says, the first thing you learned about Christ is to put off the old self. The word here in Greek literally means to get undressed. To undress, to take off the old self with its deceitful desires. Oh man, deceitful desires. Here's the truth. We can convince ourselves anything is right. You can use God language and the scriptures and convince yourself anything is right. I feel like God's telling me to do this. Oh, really? Was that God or was it you? I have found in my life so many times that I thought uh, that I truly believed God was leading me to something that later on I realized was just me. That wasn't God. The Old Testament says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Our modern culture, follow your heart you'll never go wrong. One of the ways that the Bible tells us that we must live in Christ is the purposeful, decided pursuit of taking off the old self. The big fancy word for it is repentance. Without repentance... There is no Christianity. Now I would do well here to pause and say and remind every person here that the gospel says we are saved by grace through faith. If you're not familiar with those terms, if you don't understand the gospel, we've been doing this essential series for several weeks. You can go to our website, go to the podcast, and go back a few weeks and listen to how we are saved by grace and not by our actions. Our actions do not save us. However, saving faith is never alone. This is Paul's agreement with James, where, the apostle, where James said, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith and I will show you my faith by what I do, James says. Paul does not disagree with James. Paul says, someone who has faith in Jesus is going to live in a way where they are purposefully pursuing repentance. Now, are they perfect? No. No, no, no. If you leave here today and what you heard me say is, if you aren't totally repentant by this this time tomorrow, you're not a Christian. That is not what I am saying. I am saying, you don't have to be perfect, but you do have to be participating. There has to be a part of you that is seeking to be less sinful tomorrow than you were today. That is calling on the Lord to change your heart, to find those places of rebellion in yourself that are recurrent, that are always there, to confess those sins, to name them, all right, so let's look at this whole passage again, verse 22 through 24. So he says, That's not how you learn Christ. And then, verse 22 and 24, he says, You got to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The word put on is literally the word for get dressed. So he says, get undressed, take off your old self, get dressed in the new self. So there's three things here, Paul says, that are indicative of the Christian life, of the Christ life. One, repentance. The turning away from sin. The purposed, intentional turning from sin. Two, the renewal of the mind. The renewal of the mind. This is the impurposed intent pushing toward learning the things of God, pursuing the things of God, and keeping the things of God in our mind. This is where prayer, scripture, singing worship songs, these things renew our mind. They keep our mind on the things above, another, gospel, another New Testament writer would say. Keep your mind on things above where Christ is seated high. And third, to put on the new self. To put on the new self. To pursue the Christian life. To pursue the goodness that we know God wants from us. He uses two words to describe that new life. Righteous and holiness. That we are to pursue righteousness and we are to pursue holiness. Now those are churchy words that we don't use a lot. Uh, but they basically mean to pursue who God is and to manifest who God is in our life. So watch what he says. You are the new self, put on the new self, which is what? Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So God is righteous and holy. Uh, last week when we talked about sin, people's favorite, just talk of the whole year, uh, I talked about why is sin, sin? Why are things in this world evil? Why do we call them evil instead of good? Why do we call truth good? Why do we call love good? Why do we call mercy good? Why don't we call hate good? Why don't we call uh, cruel good? And the reason is, is that what is good in this world finds its definition by who God is. In other words, God is truthful, so truthfulness is good. God is merciful, so mercy is good. God is just, so justice is good. On and on and on and on. So the newness of the Christian life is to pursue the things that God is and put them into practice. So now, (coughs) just, it's over. (coughs) Calling it off. Okay. So, nope, not yet. I'm sorry. Okay, so when we put these things into pursuit, when we put these things into our lives and pursue them, the things that God calls us to are the things we pursue, not just for an external hurdle. It's not a test we climb It is an acknowledgement of and a participation in who God is that the Bible calls worship. So now my truth telling is tempered by my kindness and my mercy and my love and my gentleness. It is also fueled by righteousness and justice Because all of those things are who God is. So when I tell the truth, I don't just want to go, well, I'm going to tell the truth and blah. Destroy people with it. I want to tell the truth, but I want it to be kind and just and loving. I want it to be just, I say just, anyway. Anyway. Because those things are who God is, and I want to know God, and I want to see who God is. I want to worship God, and I want to see who I am created to be in the likeness of God. My pursuit of purity is not because of a puritanical vision of sexuality. It is a pursuit of who God is and an acknowledgement of God is. There's a richness there. That now I am not obeying laws because they're black and white checklists. I am pursuing righteousness and holiness because of who God is. That I want to know him. I want to see him. I want to participate in his kingdom. The new life is Jesus' resurrection unleashed in me. It's the first fruits of the kingdom. A, participata- a participation in who God is in this world. So what Paul's calling us here to is to put away the dead old thing that is corrupted, that is dying in its old ways, which found, and the truth is this, we call good those things we desire. And we will corrupt any vision of an external that goes against that. If I want it, it's good, I'll do it. My desires are what are good. I'm going to name my own reality of what's good for me, what's right for me. How many times do you hear that? But pursuing who God is and putting what's good outside of me is an act of worship. To be a reflection of what is good is what I was created for. It's what you were created for to not be the determiners of what is right and good, but to be reflections of the right and good one, to worship him, to pursue him. And in that, every generation finds its own uh, difficulties and how to implement, how to pursue it. And we have to fight the battles that are in front of us. That wherever our world is pushing the hardest is where we have to push back the hardest. But we can never forget the whole in all the ways that God has called us into his new life. So I want to read to you the rest of this passage in Ephesians 4, it's verses 25 and following, where Paul just starts throwing out ideas. And I don't want you to hear these as prescriptions or as um, commandments, right? Uh, imperatives, but more as indicatives. This is who we are to be. This is who we are to pursue being. And by the way, the pursuit of trying to be these things is going to reveal all the ways you aren't. And that's when you remind yourself that your salvation was by grace and a gift and not your ability to be all these things, but a new heart and a new spirit to launch us into a new goodness, a goodness that pursues moral purity and social justice with equal fervor as God in Christ forgave you. Christ's resurrection is not just the the ultimate trick of his ministry. It was the victory of the Christ life and our beginning in the pursuit of that life. Uh, God has granted us everything we need for life and godliness in Jesus. We must as the old metaphor says, raise the sail. We can't make the wind blow. You can't raise the sail. Where we are to pursue obedience, our lives are to be lifelong journeys in learning how to more and more submit, surrender, conform, praise, and enjoy the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Will you stand and pray with me? As we close our time together, if you need prayer, some of our elders and their spouses will be in the front to pray. If you need prayer about anything, and the Bible commands us to bring all our cares to God and cast them on him, we would love to pray with you. Uh, But especially this morning, if you need to know who Jesus Christ is and why we can speak so boldly about knowing we are saved, even while admitting our lives are messes, that is the gospel and the glory of a gift given. So let's pray together and then we'll be dismissed. Our Father and God, we praise you for uh, all the things in Christ you have unleashed in us. You told your servant Paul to write that Christ is our sanctification, meaning that even our lives being turned more Christlike is one of the gifts of the cross. Uh, it will be implied slowly, painfully. Uh, It will be wrestled over our whole lives. Every victory gained just reveals three more defeats. And the point is to always drive us back to the cross and to your grace. That we will never be complacent thinking we've got it down, but that always you'll be calling us to be even more kind and gentle and loving and merciful and righteous and truthful. You will call us always to be more gracious and um, generous and but also more holy and more just. God, I pray that you will show us the glories of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise him all the days. And it's in his name we pray, in the name of Christ, our Savior King. Amen.